head downstairs in case you got here a little late. <clears throat> well, the past couple of months, we've been working our way through our God is Stranger sermon series, um, and we've covered a lot of territory up to this point. We've seen God call the 75-year-old Abraham to pack his bags and move to a foreign land, kind of strange. We've seen God physically wrestle with Jacob and dislocate his hip. That's kind of odd. Uh, we saw how the Apostle Paul, one of the most religious, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the most religious men of his time, he didn't even know who Jesus was when he encountered him. He thought he knew who God was, but he didn't have a clue. We saw in the life of Gideon <clears throat> that God often chooses the, um, the least likely people when they least expect it. Uh, we saw a few weeks ago how King David talked about breaking the teeth, blinding the eyes, and never letting the wicked experience God's salvation. And those words are actually in the Bible. Strange words, strange stories. And all of these encounters and stories um, really show us that God often is not who we think he is. That's the point that we're trying to get at. And rather than being frustrated that God is stranger and often unpredictable, we hope that this series has kind of fostered a sense of wonder, a sense of curiosity within you to pursue him and to better know this God who in many ways is a mystery to us. And we hope that you have been and will be overwhelmed by the glory of our King. And so this morning we're going to continue um, by examining how God was stranger in the life of Isaiah. Um, looking at Isaiah's words, they're going to reveal quite a bit to us because uh, he spoke. His prophecies were directed toward people that knew a lot about God, but they didn't really know him. And their assumptions of God were pretty far off. And um, Isaiah, if you didn't know, is one of the largest books in all of the Bible. It's spanning um, 66 chapters. It's pretty beefy. Um, he is widely considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament comment, um, sorry, the Old Testament prophets. There's no debating that. Um, his name means salvation of the Lord, which is kind of an interesting title considering so much of um, his words and so many of his prophecies dealt with the salvation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, I learned this week that a lot of the early church writers actually called Isaiah the fifth gospel. I had never heard of that. I even went to seminary, never heard of that. They called it the fifth gospel. St. Jerome said that Isaiah should actually be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes Christ, all the mysteries of Christ in the church so clearly that you would think he's composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying about what is to come. Um, we know very little about Isaiah's personal life outside of what he recorded in his book. We know that he was married and that he had two children, and that's about the extent of it. Um, his personal life is mostly a mystery, which I kind of find strange considering how prominent of an author he is in the Bible. And... Um, his ministry took place in the region of Judah, kind of in near Israel, from about 60 years, from 740 to 680 B.C. So we're talking a long time ago, okay? Long, long time ago. So that's a little bit of background on Isaiah's um, life and just the masterful book that bears his name. So we're going to dive into it. Go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it is 
should be on page uh, 619, I believe. Before we read this, we need to know that the people that Isaiah ministered to were really difficult, okay? Um, The people of Israel were very good at performing the religious acts, okay? Going through the motions, if you will, but their hearts were far removed from the Lord. So Isaiah arrives on the scene, and he starts off his book with these words. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 10 said, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Well, good morning. Um, Talk about coming in hot here. He's not messing around, okay? He's not sugarcoating anything. He is flat out just calling Israel out for their sin. You know you're in bad company when you're being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Something is not right with the way that you're acting and operating. That's bad company to be in. And you see the... The Israelites that Isaiah is prophesying to here, they knew the Old Testament that was available to them at the time. They were familiar with the words of the Old Testament and its teachings. They knew the truth of the Almighty, but they didn't know him, right? You can know a lot about someone, but it doesn't mean you know them at all on an intimate level. They knew a lot about him, but they misunderstood his heart. They missed the things that he cared about. They prioritized religious service over heartfelt obedience. And their lives gave the Lord no pleasure, it says. Their actions, God says, were detestable. He called their assemblies worthless. He said he hated their religious feasts and their religious festivals with all of his being. He said when they would pray, he would hide his eyes from them, and he would not listen. That's rough. That's rough. God is not having any of it. He sees right through their fake worship. He sees right through their fake worship. And perhaps what might be hardest for us to swallow is how similar we can be to the people of Israel. How many times do we come to church week after week after week? Just because we've been told it's the good Christian thing to do. How many times do we drop off some donations or maybe give a little bit of money? Not out of a heart of gratitude, but out of guilt. Out of a sense of obligation. How many Bible studies or small groups, gatherings have we attended simply going through the motions? Not revealing our true selves to anyone or not truly caring to know anyone? On a deep level. 
You see, we're pretty good as well at doing all the right Christian things. But if our hearts are unrepentant, if we think that we're still in control, right? If we choose to ignore the things that God cares about, then our church attendance, our monetary giving, and our volunteer hours are detestable to him. They are worthless to him because it's the heart or it's nothing. That's all that God cares about. It's our heart or it's nothing. And C.S. Lewis really, really kind of hit on this point in this long quote here. He says, um, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great um, aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition. And hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. It's the heart or it's nothing. You see, God made himself a stranger to the Israelites because of their unrepentant hearts, even while they were doing all of the right Christian things. Is it possible? Is it possible that perhaps God has made himself a stranger to us at times because we care too much about getting a church high or a little spiritual boost on Sundays? much more than we care about falling on our knees in worship because his goodness and our sin are too much for us to bear together. That's something to wrestle with. And God's real issue with the people of Israel, it it wasn't really with their worship services on Sunday, if you will. His issue was with the lives they were living the other six days of the week, okay? Okay? What was on their minds throughout the rest of the week when they weren't gathered for corporate worship? How did they spend their time, their money, and their energy throughout the week? Whatever they did, it was clearly offensive to God. He hated it with all of his being, right? So we're going to keep and just pick up where we left off. So we finished at verse 15 there. So Isaiah 1, 16. We're going to look at these next two verses here. So he says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Well, there it is. You want to know what God cares about, what gets his heart beating faster? It's right here. Go ahead and show that, Josh. Kind of put it in order. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, defend and care for the fatherless. We talked about that a lot last week, right? Defend and care for widows. That's quite a bit different than just coming to church, right? 
from giving a little bit of money when we have it, right? These things are hard for us to do, and it's intended to be that way. These things require us to die to our natural selves, right? They require us to stretch our neck out a little bit and potentially put us in some awkward situations around maybe some awkward people that we would typically choose to ignore or completely avoid altogether. And that gives us, many of us, anxiety, right? So that's when fear can kick in. And you know fear kicks in when the questions you're asking in your head start with what if. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I can't lead well? What if I'm not a good volunteer? What if I mess up? What if I don't know what to say? Fill in the blank. I get it. I've wrestled with all that myself. It's so much easier for me to play it safe, just to do things in my life that I'm comfortable with. By nature, I'm a homebody, okay? I love being home. That's my jam, okay? I love being home. I love being home with my family. Um, I love enjoying the comfort of my home. I don't think God cares that much about how comfortable my home is, if I was to, to be completely honest with you guys. I think he cares that maybe my basic needs are met, not how cool a couch is that I have, right? Or my TV or whatever I might be preoccupied with. And so this stuff has been hard for me. And I'll be honest, I've been kind of praying, you know, this past week or two, especially with the message last week. God, what, what should this look like in my life, doing those things, caring for the oppressed, right, the vulnerable? What, what should this look like in my family, right? How can we better engage in those things? And I know one thing that he's not looking for is perfect people, right? I think we can all agree with that. He's just looking for people who will show up and have a willing heart to live, love, and lead wherever he might place you, wherever he might place us. And so it's safe to say the Israelites here that we're talking about this morning completely missed the mark in what they prioritized in worship. And Isaiah wanted to be very clear that God was disgusted. He was disgusted with their fake worship. This isn't really a fun sermon, sorry. Like, Isaiah's life was terrible. Like, that's what I want to talk about next. Um, Like, think about the calling that God put on his life. Hey, you're going to preach to these people for 60 years, and none of them are going to really listen to you. (laughs) Wah, wah, right? Who in the world would want that or sign up for that? And to make it worse, the people that he prophesied to, they, they weren't even foreigners. It was his hometown people that he grew up with and knew personally, individuals and couples and families who just blew him aside and completely disregarded what he gave over half of his life to, proclaiming the gospel. It was a brutal calling. (laughs) Imagine being called to a ministry and doing it for 60 years and really never seeing any fruit. Who would last that long? You'd say, screw this, man, I'm out. Six months is too much for me to bear. Nothing's going well here, right? But there's more going on here than what meets the eye. Uh, Chris Kendaya in his book, God is Stranger, he said, this is so good, what if Isaiah's heartbreak at the failure to pass on this message could in fact be the best possible means of knowing better a God who is heartbroken? What if Isaiah's heartbreak at the failure to pass on this message could in fact be the best possible means to teach Isaiah a God who is heartbroken to help him relate to it. 
could God's strange request to preach to people who would never understand be the only way that he could really grasp God's broken heart? That's something to consider. I thought that was an amazing point. For us, you know why we're often consumed with our ministry success, right? We can view that in terms of numbers or turnouts or how much money we're bringing in through donations or whatnot. God's concerned with us connecting with his heart, connecting and relating to his heart, right? He knows if we can feel what he feels, see what he sees, everything else will fall in place. If he has our heart, the good deeds, the right actions will follow. It's not the other way around, okay? That's how the Pharisees operated. That's how Israel operated. It's the heart. That's always the starting point. Turn over with me to Isaiah 3. Actually, you might just still be on that page. 621. So the first section we looked at, this was kind of Isaiah laying out the rebellion. Now we're going to look at some of the judgments coming because of their rebellion. So this is real fun too. Isaiah 3, starting in verse 1, 1 through 5. says, See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter, I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. So here goes Isaiah again, laying down the hammer, <laughs> proclaiming the judgments that are coming on these people. Um, they're going to lose supply and support. Food and water will be removed Children to rule over officials. People will oppress each other. In other words, things are about to get bad, okay? Things are about to get real bad. We don't have the time to go into all of it, but the culmination of all these events take place with Israel having the promised land taken away from them, okay? They were forced into exile, and they became slaves and refugees to foreigners who worshiped false idols. In short... God was about to completely turn their life upside down. He was about to turn their life upside down. Imagine being kidnapped from your hometown, taken to a foreign country, and being forced into slavery. Okay? That would suck. It'd be hard for it to get much worse than that, right? But God knew that it would take something this serious to open their eyes. He knew it would take something of this magnitude to reach them. Um, Chris Kandaya had this to say about the exile of God's people. Not only is God allowing the world to be turned upside down, the Israelites, he is orchestrating it and doing so as part of his covenant promise. God is going to turn his nation out to turn their understanding of him upside down. Perhaps in exile, when they will experience firsthand what it means to be the oppressed, the victims, and the vulnerable, they will begin to understand why it is so important to understand how much God identifies with the other, the stranger. Perhaps they will learn finally the true meaning of worship. And this is yet kind of another example of how God is stranger, right? He's literally allowing his own people, Israel, to be kidnapped and forced into slavery. 
what? Why? Why would he allow that to be happen to his chosen people? Well, for one, he knew it would take something this extreme to reach them, to open their eyes. He knew they would never care for the oppressed and the vulnerable um, if they could never relate to them. To walk in their shoes would completely change their perspective and humble them to actually get it, to see why these things are so important to God, to, to feel what he feels when he looks upon the faces of the oppressed and the suffering. And I think there's a little bit more at play here that I want to hit on. And so if you don't listen to anything else or get anything from this message, I want you to get this. Sometimes God gives us over to our sin. Ooh, some of you are like, yeah, he does. It's not very fun, though, is it? Sometimes God gives us over to our sin. He allows our world to be turned upside down because of our sinful desires. Maybe he's tried tugging on our hearts, convicting us, right? Speaking to us through his words, sending people our way to kind of lovingly call us out. But we blew them off because they weren't feeding into our ego. They weren't feeding into what we wanted. Or maybe we didn't like who he sent us, right? Maybe it's someone that's really not even a Christian or someone that's got a lot of obvious flaws themselves. But guess what? The truth is the truth, regardless of how nicely it might be packaged, right? The truth is still the truth. Perhaps God has tried to speak to us through his word, but our hearts were too cold. Our personal agenda was too much, too powerful to listen to what he had to say. He knows sometimes the only way to reach us is to give us over to our sin. It's the only thing that will wake us up to how much we need him. And King David wrote about this in Psalm 81, this idea of giving people over uh, to their sin when he said this. Go ahead, Josh. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. Has God ever given you over to your sin? Has he ever given you over to your stubborn heart? Maybe you, were <clears throat> maybe you were dabbling in some sins that you were kind of trying to keep secret, keep on the down low. Some obvious ones that come to mind could be alcohol, right, drugs, pornography, affairs, you name it. God tried to confront you through his word, through his spirit, maybe through Christian brothers or sisters, but you weren't willing to listen. You blew off the attempts that God made to rescue you, and so he gave you over to what you wanted what you thought you wanted and so you became more immersed in it right more immersed in perhaps the addiction maybe shame filled your heart maybe you got caught by your spouse or your children found out and it rocked your family maybe you're still picking up the broken pieces from that time in your life perhaps you can identify more with God giving you over to your pride that's a big one where has your pride taken you? Where has your pride taken you? Where has your greed taken you? To what extent, to what extent have you pursued that? Where has your lust taken you? Or fill in the blank, whatever might be your struggle. I remember probably seven years ago, 
I was pretty new to working here. And I laugh at this now because it's so bad. Um, Bob sat me down in a meeting. I've shared this with my interns, so you'll know where I'm going. I don't know if I've shared this here. He goes, hey, man, you know, we need to talk. I was like, okay. And he goes, I've kind of been hearing some things that maybe you're coming across um, a little demanding, maybe a little hardcore, intense, perhaps controlling. I was like, oh, okay. I Oh, dang. He goes, I just wanted to bring that to your attention. I would really challenge you to ask somebody at church that maybe serves underneath you if there could be any truth to that. I was like, okay. <laughs> so about seven years ago, I pulled a guy um, aside in this hallway right by the men's bathroom, and I said, hey, man, is, do I ever come across, you know, demanding, maybe controlling, anything like that? And he goes, yeah, man, sometimes you remind me of Adolf Hitler. Guys, if you're being compared to Adolf Hitler, <laughs> especially if you're a Christian pastor, you, you got some heart issues. There's some things you need to address, right? And so, you know, I kind of blew it off like, oh, really? Wow. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> so that, was, that began a journey to figure out what was going on because God let me clearly just do my thing to a point to where I had to get called out by someone, right, embarrassingly enough. And I'm so thankful that he was willing to be honest with me, and that began a journey. I needed to realize, man, I got to chill out, and this demandingness or whatever, this has to be toned down, or I'm not going to last in ministry. Nobody's going to even want to be around me. It's going to get really bad if things don't change. And, you know, we have to be willing in those moments to receive God's correction. God's correction came through my friend at that time. We have to receive that correction as love, Right? We have to be willing to receive it as love. Because until we can appreciate him giving us over to our sin, you know, he's not trying to force us to change. He's not um, trying to control us. Until we can see his correction as love, we're always going to be tempted to play the victim card, right? Well, things are just bad. That's kind of why I am this way. You know, I just grew up this way. It's just kind of how I operate. You know, other people kind of have led me to this thing or this way of thinking, Fill in the blank, right? So I got a question for you guys. Think back on a time in your life where God gave you over to your sin. So I'm going to give you like 15 seconds to think about that, then I'm going to ask the question. Some of you know immediately. Maybe you're in it. Think back on a time in your life where God gave you over to your sin. Okay? Now, here's what I want to hear. What are some lessons? What's a lesson you learned through that experience? What did God teach you about his heart, about yourself, when he gave you over to your sinful desires? Who'd be willing to be so vulnerable? What did God teach you through that time? Yeah, this isn't very fun to share this. Oh. <laughs> Check it. Okay. Yes, you kind of had to hit rock bottom to realize, okay, I might need God, right? Rock bottom, yeah, okay. Who else? Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. Her sin affected everyone around her. Yes. It's not just about you that's touched by your poor choices. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, that's good. He said God's correction is always gracious. That's beautiful. It's always beautiful and gracious, even though it's hard and painful and, and can be extremely difficult for us to wrestle with. It's always gracious. That's good. Guys, as we kind of wrap up and um, come to the communion table here in a few minutes, we have an opportunity to pause, to reflect, and to repent, which is what Israel would not do. We have that opportunity today. God desires a heart of repentance from our idolatry, from our fake worship, from caring about things that he simply doesn't care about, from having our hearts removed from our good deeds. Is God going to have to turn your world upside down to help you be and do who he's created you to be? So regardless of where you are in your faith or what, God might be speaking to you this morning. I hope that you'll use this time, this kind of few minutes of silence, to press into his heart, to repent of any sin that he brings unto you. Some of you know it immediately. Yeah, like this has to get right. This has to change. Sins that are obvious, right, that are people can physically see. Repent of sins that are hidden. Those are the ones that can be more destructive. The pride, the lust, the greed, the jealousy. Ask him to help you feel what he feels to see what he sees when he looks upon humanity, okay? Ask him how you could join him in his mission to support the oppressed, to care for the vulnerable, the fatherless, the widows. So I'm going to pray for us, then after a few minutes of silence, the ushers will come up and dismiss you by row, and we have gluten-free options if you need that as well for communion. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for gathering um, all of us here this morning, God. Lord, I, I pray that we would learn from Israel's mistake. God, that we would not go through the motions of this Christian life. God, but that our hearts would be fully captivated and surrendered to you. That from the overflow of our hearts, God, we would choose to live in community as you've commanded us. That we would choose to be generous with our time, our money, our resources, our energy. God, help us to step into the hard places that you've called us to as laid out clearly in Isaiah 1, Lord, just the list that we looked at. Give us the courage, God, to step into those hard places, to not let fear hold us back, God. God, help us to be obedient. Help us to be people who fully follow you, God, from heartfelt obedience, God, not out of a sense of guilt or obligation, Lord. So I pray as we have this time of silence that you'll speak to us, God. Um, show us what needs to change, Lord, and help us to use this time to repent and draw unto you.